So then. If you awaken from this illusion, persistence of vision. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, on land, sea, air, or even in outer space, this is the Persistence of Vision podcast, the podcast where we talk about books so you don't have to. <laughs> that was lovely, Obi. Yes, hello. Persistence of Vision podcast. If you want to see us online, it is pov-publishing.com. There, you will see um, works by world-class authors. You'll see uh, comics by world-class comic writers, drawers, that sort of thing. Um, you can see the links to all our past podcasts. And most importantly, you can see the links to buy my book, Why So Much, by Lance Myers. And my book, The Goddamn Fool, if I recall, yes. by L.B. Dio. <laughs> Yes, go buy those books because they're phenomenal <laughs> books. And again, I am LBDO. I'm your host, and this is my young uh, junior partner, Lance Beavermeyer. <laughs> hey! and, and we have we're very excited today to discuss Dostoevsky's Demons, also known as Dostoevsky's The Devils, also known as Dostoevsky's The Possessed also known as Dostoevsky's The Demons, also known as Devils, also known as Possessed, with Jason Newlander. Hi, Jason. Welcome to the show, Jason. Thanks, guys. I'm so excited to be here. Holy crap, you are excited. <laughs> <laughs> oh, stand down, young blood. Really classy. Holy mackerel. Classy. Yeah, no, no, no. This, this beats Terry Gross by like <laughs> 10 miles. You were on Terry Gross? No. Okay, well, that's that's cool to know. Anyway, though, yeah. So, Jason, when when we asked you to be on the podcast, you chose "Demons" with all those other alternate titles, of course. Uh, Dostoevsky's "Demons." Why did you choose such a book? Actually, when you when you first said, uh, "I would like to discuss uh, Dostoevsky's Demons," you know, a, a book by a Russian existential author named "Demons." I thought it was going to be some lighthearted romp. <laughs> uh, but it was actually turned out to be quite dark. What's well, up? <laughs> oh my God. Okay. I love this book so much. And the idea that I have an opportunity to share that love with anybody is um, quite tantalizing to me. So I'm pretty sure this is my favorite book of all time. Uh, which is why I uh, just jumped at the opportunity to be able to talk about it. And, you know, uh, Lance, you said something that to me is kind of defines the, the, a big reason that I love this book so much, which is that this book is incredibly dark and yet it is incredibly funny. And that is that combination of those two things, uh, in my opinion, makes it, Dostoevsky's best book and one of the greatest books ever written. Well, LB, I remember you uh, saying in some uh, previous podcast, maybe it was the Owen Edgerton one, I'm not sure, you had said something about how uh, Notes from the Underground you thought was one of the funniest books you, you ever read. Yes, I love that He's book. Like, you know what? I, hilarious. Yeah, I, well, I love the book myself. It's It was the first Dostoevsky I ever read. Um, and I, but it never occurred to me to call it funny. And when you said that, I was like, you know what? You're right. It is a pretty funny book. Well, I think one of the big misunderstandings that people have of Dostoevsky, because he's a ch no question a challenging read, mm. is that uh, 
they think Russian, great master, you know, literature, these books are long, that they're re really serious, you know, and they are really serious. Dostoevsky was wrestling with issues that for him were life and death on a personal level, you know, but um, one thing I think that I found when I first read this book, which was the first time, I've read this book multiple times. The first time I read this book was in 1998. And uh, I was totally taken aback by how hilarious it is. In fact, that, you know, it's right at the beginning of the book that Dostoevsky, I think, tips his hand. And it made me wonder, re-looking at the book in prep for this podcast, if he must have been influenced by Dickens because Dickens uses uh, the role of the narrator in a very similar way that the narrator is used in this book. And I've, I've read all of Dostoevsky's great novels and I think he only uses the narrator in this particular way here. And it is, the narrator of this book is an unreliable narrator. So um, the narrator, unnamed, you have no idea who it is, but he seems to be a witness to everything or she. And, uh, and, but their opinion <laughs> is so, uh, hilariously, like ironically askew of the actual situation at hand. For example, uh, right out of the gate, he introduces, uh, Stepan Trefir, thank you, uh, you know, as this, like, almost hero of the, uh, you know, Catherine II era of, of, of Tsarist Russia. But you quickly learn that Stepan is a clown. And, uh, and his own sort of pomposity and uh, just ridiculousness, you know, is evident within, I think, you know, in the first couple of pages, you're like, wait a second, the, reli the, the reliability of this narrator is basically none. And, um, and, you know, at that point, you're kind of off and running. And then, okay, and here's something to me that was, you know, in that first read that was so fascinating. So my best friend in high school was an emigre from Russia when he was a kid, little kid. And, um, and his personality, was and is so reminiscent of Piotr's personality in this book <laughs> that Piotr's like also a hilarious, like, I mean, just a mischievous kind of, e I mean, ultimately he's pretty evil, but uh, but hilarious in how the grownups all love him. Yeah. Even though he is a like walking, you know, I wouldn't call him a disaster because he's incredibly calculating, but but just like a a a he's just a danger to to all these people who are for you know find themselves adoring him, yeah. and um and anyway, my buddy Lenny was like kind of had that impish like hilarious prankster kind of personality that Piotr had, so I could like immediately identify with him as a character and I found him to be just riotously funny um, and still find him to be riotously funny. Um, you know, the, the character who has, uh, you know, we're not even getting into the plot. Okay, so let me let me back up because I have a very personal story about 
this book that, that pertains to me personally. So when I was in high school, a senior in high school in AP uh, European history, we were assigned this book to read in, uh, I believe the translation we were reading was in fact, The Possessed. And um, I was a voracious reader when I still am a voracious reader. Um, and I, you know, got the book and it was like a smallish trade, seemed like a smallish trade paperback. I, I didn't even crack it until about three days before the paper was actually due for us to write it. We had to write like a 10 to 15 page paper on, and we had like five different essay topics. And I open it up and I start reading and I realize there's absolutely no way that I can read this book in three days. Like it is simply impossible. And then I'm like, oh my God, I'm going to fail this paper. So one of the questions, one of the essay questions that we were given was talk about how demons is a, um, applies the elements of the book of revelations to its story. Yes. Okay. So I, and there were four other questions. So I went to the library and went to the card catalog. If uh, your listeners don't know what that is, it's <laughs> to Google it. And I pull open one of the little drawers, the D to, you know, E drawer or whatever, and start flipping through to try to find Dostoevsky in there. And uh, I do. And I'm like, uh, this is such a long shot to find like Dostoevsky, the possessed revelations, like for that to be one of the subjects and the sub, you know, as a subject card, astonishingly, I did. And the library owned this book, which was a collection of essays about Dostoevsky's novels, one of which was, was exactly that essay question, like an answer. Mm-hmm. So I got that book out a lot. What's that? You cheated. I did. <laughs> I totally cheated. I plagiarized this no. um, essay in my class, rewriting it. Like I just opened the book, started typing, rewrote the essay using my, you know, less academic high school vocabulary, you know, just, but ostensibly plagiarized it. And when I got to page 10 in the paper, I wrote like, I mean, I don't even know where I was in the argument. I just wrote a conclusion, concluding paragraph and handed it in. So, um, Meg McCary, not Meg McCary, Meg McDonald, who was in my class, read the book. You mean the Meg McDonald? <laughs> yeah. So Meg McDonald, bless her, read this book and through her, I knew that she had thrown everything she had into this, reading the book and writing her paper. And when we got the papers back, Meg got a B plus on her paper. I was sitting right behind her so I could see the red ink, you know, in the grade on the front of her paper. <laughs> and I got an A plus. Oh, paper. no, just- and I got the only A in the class on this paper. And Meg in front of me burst into tears. Oh, she knew that I had cheated. <laughs> and so this guilt still stays with me to this day. But flash forward from 1987 when I graduated high school to 1998, and I'm in the Austin Public Library, downtown branch, and 
I'm like, just look at, you know, just like, you know how it is in the library where you're just looking at books and wondering what you're going to check out. You're looking for something new. And they had no idea what I was going to read. When suddenly in the like to be filed on the shelves, stacked, you know, in the cart next to the shelves, I saw this um, spine of a hardcover book, Demons, Fyodor Dostoevsky. And I'm like, now I knew the book that we read was The Possessed, but I also knew it was translated as The Devils. But I was like, how many books about demons and devils could Dostoevsky have titled? You know, like, it's got to be the same book. So I pick it up and I look at the introduction and lo and behold, like right at the beginning, the translators talk about the different translations of the title. And I'm like, I owe Meg McDonald to read, I, you know, I've got to read this book. I, it's the least I can do for Meg is to read this book. And so I, I opened it and then I just couldn't put, I mean, I was like mind blown. Yeah. Uh, because what I saw in it was one, just a great book. And two, because of that character, Piotr, and, and really kind of latching onto the unreliability of the narrator, basically in the first page, I really caught the humor. Like it, the book was funny to me on the game. Now, are you still in touch with Meg? No, no, no. We hadn't talked since high school. Facebook. I hope she's, maybe she's a listener. Send the link. Uh, I'm, I'm Send the link to this podcast to Meg. Yeah. I really hope that she is. And Meg, if you are, I am, I, you've probably forgotten all about this, but I really am sorry. No, I, bet you, I wish you had gotten a name. After this show, Jason, set, we're going to have to sit down because I had a very, very similar experience in high school. And it was I who got the A, just, and this girl who happened to be my girlfriend who got the B uh, in a very similar situation. And it's a great story. But anyway, let's talk about, first of all, who are you, Jason Newlander? We haven't really touched on that. You're a, you're a director. You're a theater company founder. You've made a movie now. Uh, you've made a lot of plays. Your yeah, movie that's is it. called Fugitive Dream. It's in the, it's, Jason Newlander is a giant in, the, in this town. Giant, the creative, giant in this town. Creative juggernaut, yeah. and and um, he's done many many things, and he's he's really classing up the joint by even joining us here. Um, but uh, yeah, so <laughs> uh, thank you for being here, uh, Jason. You said a lot of things in that in that uh, opening statement there, um, and and you and we've said the the title many times, but it's a little maybe a little uh, misleading to those who have never encountered the book. Can you tell us a little bit about? It's not actually about supernatural demons. What is, no. what is demons about? What is I think it's about the demons inside of all of us, you know, um, the premise of the book, but the deep, but the title is a clue that this is an allegory. Um, so at the surface level, what the story is about is there's this like, it's an intergenerational story that takes place in this little tiny Russian town in the middle of nowhere where you've got this group of uh, kind of like middle-aged adults who were part of a major social change that had took place in Russia in the 19th century, about 20 years before the book takes place, where almost like the hippie generation in the United States like had a big impact on like civil rights and stuff like that, that we're still feeling the ripple effects of today. Um, it itself was written in 18... 
70s sometime. It was published in the 1870s. It published, it's right, it's, it's, I like to think of Dostoevsky's novels as being around the time of the Civil War. I find that, the U.S. Civil War, I find that helpful. Uh, yeah, this one's late, a little after. I think it's like 1870. published like five, six years after the Civil yeah. War ended. So, um, uh, but under Catherine the Great, the big change that happened socially was the serfs were liberated. So they, get, they abolished slavery. And, uh, and so this older generation is sitting proud on top of their kind of liberal credentials, you know, for having been a part of that generation that has freed up the Russian culture a little bit. But there's this younger generation that is not satisfied and uh, they want more. And it really is the glimmers of what actually became the Russian Revolution. But Dostoevsky was inspired to write this story because he read, he was living, um, what's the word, uh, in, well, he was living in France, I think, at the, at the time, but, um, but he was an expatriate, that's what it is. And, uh, and he was living outside of Russia, and he had read the story that stunned him, that these students had killed another student over, like, a printing press, like something that he thought was nothing. And they define themselves, they call themselves nihilists, these students. And Dostoevsky, when he was a young man, was part of his generation's version of nihilists. And he got arrested for it and sent to Siberia, where in Siberia he became, uh, he, somebody, they, another prisoner introduced him to the Bible and he became extremely religious. And he also had epilepsy and, uh, you know, possibly a bipolar disorder. Um, but he came out of Siberia kind of loving the motherland in a way that he was very critical of before then, and also being profoundly religious. And so when he was in exile, he hears this story about this young generation that he sees as totally lacking in morals, um, maybe being a reflection of his young self, you know, seeing what he might have become. He takes it very personally. And he comes up with the basic concept for this book, which is that you have this younger generation that secretly, underground, unbeknownst to their elders, is fomenting revolution. Um, and so that's really what this book is about, is this intergenerational story between, and, and the book shifts perspectives. We go from Stepan, who the narrator talks about early in the uh, book, who is of that older generation, but is a clown. Yeah. Uh, and then it goes to this younger generation and it's uh, this character, uh, Nikolai Stavrogin, who is maybe most, maybe is the character that Dostoevsky maybe most relates to. It's definitely the protagonist of the book, I think. Um, I mean, it's an ensemble cast, but- he's, uh, the one, he's the one whose heart we see into. Yes, and he's, the, he's conflicted. And he's the one who Piotr is trying to convince to join the revolution. Piotr is certain that if Nikolai Stavrogin joins up with the revolution, the revolution will succeed. Um, uh, but what their revolution is, is, it turns out, is based on really nothing. It's, it's just purely destructive. And, and, and you, about a year after I read this book, uh, the Columbine shooting happened. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, my God, it's demons all over again. The children of the parents who were part of the 60s generation who thought that they, had, you know, but their kids are totally dissatisfied in ways that they can't even comprehend. 
you know? And then now looking at the storming of the Capitol in the United States, it's to my mind anyway, it's a similar kind of agitation that takes place in this book. But okay, so there, so there's the basic premise. But then what Dostoevsky does, which he does in all of his novels to one degree or another, but I think this is his, I personally think this is his funniest book. Um, is he finds a way to find humor within the story to make his characters a little bit over the top, a little bit ridiculous. I mean, one of my favorite scenes in the novel is where the revolutionaries are secretly meeting. And they're talking about how, one of them makes this little speech about how, you know, it's the 10% of the elites that are gonna like be in charge of the 90% of the, everybody else. And, one of the other characters like starts making fun of the guy talking, going, well, you're just presuming you're going to be one of the elites, but you know, yeah. in fact, you're going to be one of the 90%. Um, and I think it's a hilarious, hilarious scene. And, um, you know, and again, it's like kind of relevant to right now in some ways. Well, the, the, it's one of the things that makes these books uh, and this time period in Russia so interesting to me is that we have these stark differences between that time and place and ours, and yet these absolutely unavoidable similarities at the same yeah. time, right? And we have a society that's so bizarre to us, like the upper classes in Russia at this time speak French. Yeah. They speak French, they don't speak Russian. And some of them are, some of them are so removed from the ordinary people that they literally don't speak Russian very well. They don't really know how to speak Russian. And they're Russians, and uh, and yet so that, so that was since it's very different. And then at the same time, you have the liberation of the serfs happening almost the same time as the abolition of slavery in the United States. You have these uh, two these opposing forces in Russia of the Russophiles, who are these religious uh, uh, Slavophiles rather, the, who are these very religious, deeply patriotic, somewhat backward people. And then you have these socialist, nihilist, atheists who uh, consider themselves to be the scientific way forward. And some of this humor that you describe comes from this ludicrous juxtaposition of these revolutionary youths who want to destroy these adults and the, the, the slavish adoration and respect <laughs> that the adults have for these- <laughs> For the kids, yeah. No better example of that probably than Kirillov. Kirillov, who is, uh, a great writer in the book, you know, but he's based on Ivan Turgenev. Turgenev, I know, I know. The best Russian writers and- uh, Well, but Dostoevsky, Dostoevsky hated Turgenev. He thought yeah, he was terrible. Yeah, they, they were like <laughs> in the same social circles. It's like if I wrote a book and, and I made a character based on Lance, it was this absolutely repulsive, <laughs> ludicrous, idiotic <laughs> It's really just like a monster because, because he knows that the revolution or at least this violence is being planned. And he does, he, all he wants to know is, is it going to happen before or after I'm planning to leave town in a couple of days? <laughs> <laughs> and he's like literally adding, asking Peter Stepanovich, is this going to happen in uh, like within the next 24 hours to leave town? And Stepanovich is like, yes, you fucking... <laughs> Craven, <laughs> ludicrous asshole. <laughs> One of my favorite scenes in the book, also, which is, uh, to my mind is just a hysterically funny scene, is the scene where oh, I'm going to blank on the character's name, but this this um, it's they've all got a church and they've gone back to the 
uh, Var Varvara's uh, house, one of the, another one of the older characters, and they're kind of having brunch together or something like that. But but the, the room they're in appears to have I don't know what a dozen doors, in it. and um, through each one of the doors, a different character just like kind of stumbles into the room, almost Kramer like out of Seinfeld, yeah. you know. <laughs> and um, and one of the characters who stumbles in is this like poor, almost homeless guy who's drunk and he just starts singing a song about a cockroach. And, you know, it's this complete embarrassment to the rich, aristocratic people who are trying to just have their Sunday, you know, afternoon together. Um, and the, you know, I'm a theater guy. And one of the uh, definitions that I love about a farce is that, you know, one of the, one of the key uh, components of a farce is that it's a play that takes place in a room with tons of doors so that you can have all those ridiculous entrances and exits. Mm -hmm. And I feel like just reading that, I'm like, okay, Dostoevsky, obviously, he knows what he's doing. You know, he is letting us, the reader, know that what's happening here is just totally over the top ridiculous, intentionally over the top ridiculous. He's gonna keep adding steps that make it more and more and more ridiculous just to show the, but, but in service of what he sees as a real danger to his country, which is the complacency of this older generation that has patted itself on the back and decided their work is done. And, also, I think what's interesting in this book, more than any other Dostoevsky book, I feel like, Dostoevsky himself is very conflicted because I think that he believes that freeing the serfs is a good thing, mm -hmm. yet at the same time, he really wants this like very tradition. He, he himself is a Slavophile. So, yeah, that's exactly what I wanted to bring up to you. And I, I feel like I've, maybe I'm going to expose myself as someone who's not quite bright <laughs> by asking this question, <laughs> or maybe just not quite as well read or, uh, uh, you know, haven't done as much research into the, the, the Russian, um, you know, the history of, of this whole thing. But let me ask you this question. Okay. As I'm reading, I go back and forth between trying, well, I, I, I struggle to find his point of view because I find myself I mean, he's parodying, he's writing something that, that totally just mocks the whole liberation type movement. He's, he's mocking those who um, are, are going to stray away from a very conservative Christian Russian Orthodox viewpoint. And so I started to, to wonder, well, okay, you just mentioned like uh, it kind of being compared to this storming of the, the Capitol, but I'm not quite sure I understand which side would would, would Dostoevsky have worn a MAGA hat? I don't know. <laughs> no, no, I don't think I don't think he would have. Uh, I think that uh, he's, he's wanting this conservative viewpoint. He's wanting, like you said, you you feel him struggling with. He you think he would have approved of the the freeing of the serfs and that sort of thing, but he also is is very. Conservative in his viewpoint about you know like um, embracing the you know the politics of the motherland, right? I think, but keep in mind he's purposely living in the West. You know, he. I think I don't know. I mean, you know who who really who really knows? But but I, but I think one thing, one thing that really he. Oh, go ahead. I just think that he's really conflicted about it, and uh, and I, I also think that um, his. Like, 
I also think that this book itself opens up a worldview or a window into the psyche of Russia today. Like there's this total love-hate relationship with the West in Russia, you know? Um, I mean, Western ideas ultimately led to communism there, right? And then, um, and so, you know, and now, or, or even prior to that, Western influence gets the aristocracy and, and the czars to speak French. Like they try to emulate Western culture, you know? And so there, and now today, Putin badly wants to be taken seriously by the West, yet he, he's, you know, totally critical of the West at the same time. And so, um, and trying to mess things up in the West. And so, um, I think that the kind of the psyche, the, this this inferiority complex of that's kind of a, a part and parcel of Russian culture is just so in evidence in, in this book. And, and, and it makes it that much more relevant. And it's, it's why everybody really owns it. It's the same inferiority complex we have in the US, right? I mean, we, we when we want to sound sophisticated, whom do we emulate? We, we emulate Europe and Europeans. You know, we look up to them as as having a kind of superiority to us uh, culturally and intellectually, I mean, there's there's a there's resistance to that idea, but it's certainly ingrained in us. I think it's different, though. I mean, I think our our culture, you know, is kind of like has in its core, you know, this idea of manifest destiny and exceptionalism and stuff like that. But Russian culture, you know, from Peter the Great, uh, like definitely is in conflict with itself over yeah. like what it actually wants to be. Well, another amazing thing about Russia at this time is that, you know, you think you're talking about the liberation of the serfs, we're talking about feudalism. You know, right. that's how that's how backward in some ways the society was. And it's no wonder that guys like Peter the Great and, and subsequent leaders wanted to emulate Europe is because they were literally living in the dark ages. Yeah, yes, exactly. But an, exactly. I, the thing I wanted to mention earlier really quickly in response to Lance's thing is just one thing we're, we're not mentioning about Dostoevsky's life is that's really probably one of the most remarkable things that's ever happened to anybody was his mock execution. Oh, yeah. you know, Dostoevsky was not just in Siberia. He was sentenced to death. He was dragged to a firing squad and was standing in front of the firing squad when a quote unquote last minute messenger shows up with a pardon from the czar. Uh, you know, of course, this is all, this was all set up, you know, in advance. They didn't really, they weren't really going to execute him, but he didn't know that. Uh, and so you have this absolutely astonishing uh, moment where he comes to reckon with the, this his socialist atheist past and, and his, relationship with Russia, all in this moment of looking into the barrels of those rifles. Yeah, and it's the moment where he finds God. Yeah. So, you know, there's this incredible bit in Crime and Punishment uh, that deals direct, you know, it's a, it's a part in um, uh, Raskolnikov's mind, you know, where he's, it's, we're just in his thoughts and he, he visualizes that exact experience. Um, you know, and yes, it, it had a profound impact in that. And so I think Dostoevsky has a complex, even though he says on the surface that he wants this very traditional 
uh, Russian Orthodox kind of religious-based culture, and it's you know deeply rooted in say Brothers Karamazov. Um, I think that he, underneath that surface level, it's kind of the the lady doth protest too much. I think he's conflicted about it. I think that's what makes the books interesting, uh, because otherwise they just be polemics, and they're not. Sure, sure. Yeah, I, I, I think, think that was. Okay. It's a good thing to to keep in mind is that these aren't going to map very neatly. <laughs> onto any particular, you know, metaphor for, you know, like, or, or you know, he's, he's writing very complex characters in very complex situations. Granted, I mean, some of it is pretty straightforward, you know, mocking certain um, lifestyles or certain philosophies and whatnot, but they are very complex and very three-dimensional people. Of course, you mentioned, well, uh, you know, you, you mentioned uh, Nick, Nikolai, the, the main guy, like being, when you, when, when you talked about him, uh, you would kind of made him out to be this very popular, very, very cool guy. And he, and he is, but did you, um, did you, did you read the, uh, uh, the, what was initially the edited or the, what do you call it? Oh, yeah. Insert. Yeah. The scene where he goes to the monk. Oh yeah. my God. You talk about yeah. censored. Yes. It was censored. Oh <laughs> yes. Uh, tell us about that. What, what happens in the, um, if you dare, uh, this main character, um, it goes to see a monk. And do you remember, do you know what I'm talking about? I do, I do. And uh, because it, it had such a dark, uh, he admitted to, to this horrible thing, which I feel like really does clear up a lot about his character. And I, I do understand that why, why the editor initially censored it, but at the same time, it does change how we view Your him. understanding of who he is. Right. Well, you know, I think um, th that idea, the, that scene is stunning. It's not a funny scene. Oh, no. Uh, you know, it's like so much of the book is funny, and that scene is definitely not. Um, and I think uh, it definitely changes your understanding of the book because it reveals his, you know, big secret, which I don't want to give away because okay. people should read. But, uh, but, okay, so... On the one hand, you've got this like really funny, dark story about uh, these revolutionaries who just wreak havoc on this town. I mean, <laughs> the ending is um, apocalyptic. And uh, then on the other hand, it is an allegory. And so I think that scene with the monk actually is, um, like a, to my mind anyway, a kind of connected tissue between those worlds of the sort of the material world and the allegorical world. Um, there's something about that. What struck me more than um, uh, Sorogan's secret was the almost dreamlike quality that that chapter has. It feels like it has the other, it's almost otherworldly. Um, That's one and, of the greatest gifts, don't you think, is creating these dreamlike scenarios. Incredible. You think of uh, Brothers Karamazov, you think of Crime and Punishment, these scenes where people are in a fever. And yeah. he himself, of course, was an epileptic. Yeah. So he experienced such uh, moments himself uh, very vividly, and he's just a master at recreating them. Well, and so for him, Stavrogin is, on the allegorical level, 
if you read the book of Revelations, he is the Antichrist, as described in the book of Revelations. It was a little bit different than the Antichrist is described in, say, the Omen. Um, <laughs> the Antichrist has to be convinced to take his role, and it's the beast who has to uh, do the convincing. And the beast in this book is Peter. And so, um, you know, and if, and once you know that, you can start to see this complex, and I think like awesomely sort of desperate relationship that Piotr has with Stravogin. I mean, he is convinced that he cannot succeed in his plan without getting Stravogin to join up in the plan, you know? And, um, and once their partnership is kind of formed, then all hell literally breaks loose in the town. I mean, it's the ending of that book is like simultaneously so hilarious and so horrifying that it's just, you know, I mean, I can't really think of another book that has such a, um, you know, like rich, you know, amazing jaw-dropping climax than, than demons. You know, you mentioned, uh, you know, that when, when you say Dostoevsky and, and uh, you know, this, this novel uh, so thick and, and daunting, but uh, it actually reads really quickly and really yeah. easily. It goes down smooth, uh, except for one thing. <laughs> it's so silly, but if I found myself, if I could take my digital book and do a, a search and replace and put like American names. Yeah. <laughs> I would oh, yeah. it would be so much easier to read. But I it sounds silly, so- but you have characters named Lizaveta, Lebkian Lebkianina, Lebkidin, and Von two characters named Von Lemke. And that's just the L's. <laughs> it's very, very yeah. uh challenging to keep them straight. Well and you know well, what the beauty is of this particular translation, which I think we all read, which is the uh, uh, Peviar Volokonsky translation, um, you know, is they have a character listing in the front. And when the first time I read this book, I was continually referring to the character listing in the front and just, you know, uh, this is why I recommend reading actual books instead of Kindle books or listening to audiobooks. Um, you know, because it's so easy just to flip back and, and find out. And yes, you do have to take that extra step. And also Dostoevsky writes in this very dense form of prose that can be hard to decipher. Um, I mean, there's definitely points where I found the first time I read it where I was reading sentences multiple times just to truly understand what was actually happening. Um, and, uh, you know, I think the, the gateway to reading him my opinion is trust that if you think it's supposed to be funny, it is, <laughs> you know, um, and, uh, and really allowing that's that his very rich, dark, um, broad sense of humor to, uh, you know, kind of wash over you and give you a smile. That, that's what's so amazing is he's just so entertaining a writer. Yeah. Yeah. It is. It really is. Um, and like I said, uh, I think I, I think for anyone who has not read in Dostoevsky, again, Notes from the Underground is a, is a, is a much thinner, much less daunting um, thing to take on. And uh, and that one is hilarious. And that one is actually it's a good first step. But Demons is 
is also. So Demons was my first Dostoevsky, and I've read almost everything by him. It inspired me to go on and just read almost everything else by him ever since. Um, and I've read uh, Brothers Karamazov twice uh, since then. And believe it or not, just this summer, I read Crime and... I think I read Crime and Punishment a long time ago. But then when I was re possibly rereading it, I didn't remember anything. So uh, it's like, maybe I thought I read it and never did. Also, another hilariously funny book. I think that's his most difficult book, Brothers Karamazov. I, I find it a very... I've read it. I've read the whole thing. But it's. It, I find it very uh, challenging. Well, the first half is slow. The second half is like a, uh, a, 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 a crime novel. The second half of it is just a total patron. You know, it's a mystery yeah. story. Like, who killed dad? So, um, but that first half is super small. Although it does have the Grand Inquisitor uh, chapter in it, which is... Great. It's great. It's just difficult. You know, it's like yeah. a, a lot of things in life that are take some extra effort. Uh, but I think, uh, you know, Brothers Karamazov and Crime and Punishment are the two books that everybody talks about when they talk about Dostoevsky. You know, I, let's face it, these days, everybody's talking about Dostoevsky. But, um, but I think, uh, I, you know, I would put uh, my vote in for Demons being his, like, true masterwork. I think it's, uh, it's, I think it's his best book. All yeah. right, one last question before the thunder gathers on the horizon. Uh, and this is, this is an extension of what Lance was asking. The, 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 the reader who is... Uh, sitting down and opening up page one of the demons is facing a very daunting task, a very serious task. It's going to be uh, a very pleasurable one, a very en enlightening and edifying one. But some people are going to be listening to this and saying, I don't have time. I don't have the energy to put into this. Tell me why uh, the, re the the listener right now should just absolutely go on and say, I'm going to take this on. Well, I mean, I would nowadays, like who hasn't committed to like, you know, eight seasons of Game of Thrones or, you know, you know, like there's plenty of things out there that take time to consume yet are very rewarding. And, you know, I'll just say it, you know, Let's compare for a second, as I think most people who read this book would do. Let's compare Demons to Game of Thrones. Demons rocks all the way to the final page. <laughs> Game of Thrones fails in its final two seasons. So if you're going to make a big commitment like that, why not do something that's going to be awesome all the way through instead of something that's going to disappoint you in this final viewing. Beautiful. All right. Well, I do think I hear the sound of thunder. I'm definitely seeing the clouds roll in right now. What about you, Jason? Are you hearing any thunder out there? I'm feeling fear. Well, <laughs> <laughs> that foreboding you feel is the lightning round. That's right. You should be scared. Feel it. Be Here's terrified. All right. Uh, as as um, repeat listeners will uh, recall, at the end of each podcast, we hit the guest with a barrage of questions, and um, you can answer in a few sentences quickly, um, and then we'll just keep going. Okay, ready? Here we go. Uh, name the first time you fell in love with a book. Wizard of Oz, when I was a kid. Little kid. Okay. I, I oh, no, 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 no. Sylvester and the Magic Pebble. What am I talking about? Sylvester and the Magic Pebble. Yeah. yeah. How old were you when you read that? 
I don't know, little, little, you know, second grade or something. Oh, it's still one of my favorites. <laughs> Beautiful. We could do an episode of your show. On we should. We should. I would love it. Has a book ever changed your mind about anything? Oh, man. Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Moving on. <laughs> Has a book ever changed your life? Yes! Demons changed my life! Woohoo! Real, real quick, just tell me how, in a few words, how did demons change your life? Apart from uh, the, the story about the, uh, the plagiarism. <laughs> well, Demons was like the first uh, classic novel that I chose to read. You know, there wasn't like a sign to me in a class. And I loved it so much that I just started reading all these other classics. So, um, you know, I mean, it just opened the door to... I, Good Lord, just a plethora of amazing literature that's out there. But like, you know, Dickens, you know, I, I probably, I would never experience great expectations. Another one of my all time favorite books if I had not read uh, Demons. You know, I probably never would have read Beloved if I had never read Demons, another one of my all time favorites. Uh, you know, and then whatever, there's just, you know, tons and tons and tons. That's a great, great answer because I think it touches on something that we can all, uh, you know, sort of relate to as far as, the way it feels to read a classic book for class versus for pleasure. Yeah. <laughs> you know? But uh, okay, on to the next one. Uh, has a book ever made you cry? Oh yeah, I cry all the time at the end of books. Uh, let me think of the, oh, I just finished reading Ulysses and cried at the end of it. Ah, nice. Really, interesting. At the, at yeah, the that's another one where I could go, like we could do a podcast. I That actually has just, I just finished reading it about, three or four weeks ago and kind of prepped myself by reading a biography of James Joyce in advance and then found this fantastic blog that kind of summarized each of the chapters in a way that didn't like dumb it down too much. And, um, oh my God. I mean, Ulysses, I mean, they say it's a masterwork, but I'm just <laughs> gonna vouch for that. It is a fucking masterwork. It's amazing. You know, I, I may have to get uh, your your recommendation as far as like a guidebook for that. I've never read Ulysses, but um, and and I'm it's a it's a very uh, intimidating thing to to take on. It's a great well, I can tell you now. I'll just say it. so. Um, you should read the Richard Elman biography of James Joyce. It's the definitive biography of Joyce, which gives you all kinds of and it's like a little. It has like footnotes, not endnotes, but footnotes. Uh, like where um, it'll reference where in his various writing these this like events in his life are captured because um, uh, his books are very autobiographical and uh, and then uh, the blog oh, I'm gonna forget the name of it it's like Ulysses Revealed or something like that mm. and uh, um, it's this guy who basically summarizes the chapters he teaches Ulysses he says he's read it like sixteen times. Um, and then it has a walking tour of Dublin, like tied to it so that you can actually, it, so that was extremely helpful as I was actually reading the book. Um, and it breaks down the, uh, um, like each of the chapters in terms of how they're like, which part of um, the Odyssey they're connected to yeah. so that you can actually understand like what, um, James Joyce was actually doing. My favorite chapter of that book was the Aeolus chapter, which is the winds. Mm -hmm. And it takes place in the newspaper building and um, the newsboys, you know, the guys who sell the newspapers on the streets, 
kind of flutter through the that chapter almost like leaves picked up in like a dust devil or something like that. And it's just and, and it, it it is just ingenious how he um, finds ways to like get at his theme without being overt really about it at all. And then what was the real shocker to me was how much I just fell in love with the character of Leopold Bloom. And um, so when Penelope, when, not Penelope, when Molly, his wife, the Penelope character in the story, um, just affirms at the end that he's the man for her in the final chapter, it's just so beautiful. I mean, I just started crying. Fantastic. Well, yeah, that, that sounds, we'll have you back. We'll have you back to talk about James Joyce. Yeah. Uh, name a book that you've read more than once. I just have uh, both uh, uh, Ulysses and Demons. Oh, you had read Ulysses twice. I powered through it when I was 22. Okay. With no support and help whatsoever. On my own, I was in grad school. I didn't understand a word of what I read. That's exactly but I checked it off the list and said, someday I need to reread this when... I always told people... But the first time I read Joyce's Ulysses, I I say I read that book. That's it. I literally <laughs> worked. Yeah. I didn't yeah. get anything, didn't follow yeah. word, but yeah. I read it. <laughs> now I've read it again. As the saying goes, you don't read Ulysses, you reread Ulysses, is what I've heard. Yeah. I've never yeah. I've never read Ulysses or reread it, but uh, I look forward to it. Oh uh, man. And well, and it's funny, also another book that's totally daunting, but hilarious. Yeah. Like Joyce's sense of humor permeates every page. Uh, Jason, this is the final, the final question. It's the big one. This is the big one. Okay, you ready? I'm ready. <laughs> There's the real lightning strike. Uh, have you uh, committed any poetry to memory? No is a perfectly acceptable answer, but it's, we're going to be very disappointed in you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, well, did you song lyrics count? No. Ah, the man speaks. All right. I, spoken. I have one poem that I've committed to memory. Let's hear it. It's the E.E. E. Cummings poem, Loneliness. Uh -huh. Loneliness. All right. I love that. E.E. E. Cummings, what a man. It's such a sad affair, too. <laughs> Well, loneliness is beautiful because it's, uh, you know, the eyes and then the L's look like ones. And so it's um, the way it's written on the page. It conveys loneliness through the singleness of the individual letters. Anyway, it's a yeah. beautiful, beautiful, concise poem. Easy to memorize. <laughs> Jason Newlander, ladies and gentlemen. Ladies and gentlemen, Jason Newlander, director, author, playwright, superstar. Reader, reader, voracious reader. Reader, uh, uh, leader, and reader, and and writer, and uh, director, and superstar, and uh, a great guest, as you've all enjoyed. Hey, thanks for having me on the show. It's been a dream of mine to be on this show. So thanks for. <laughs> we'll have you back, sir. All, all right. right, I'll be glad to do it. Ulysses. That sounds like you're you're bursting with ideas about Ulysses. So. We'll oh my gosh, I could do that. We could do a two. We could do a two part episode on that. There you go. So, uh, so I'll start reading tomorrow, and we can have you on in 2025. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
Well, cool. Right. Read the Elman biography first, though, because that really does give you the prep that you need to be able to just love reading uh, Ulysses. I also recommend the Bloomsday book and the uh, Great Courses series, lecture series on Ulysses are both excellent. Fantastic. Well, listen, uh, thank you, everybody, for tuning in. Uh, this has been your POV uh, podcast, Persistence of Vision podcast. If you want more, go to pov-publishing.com. That's our website. You can see all the links to all the past podcasts and all future podcasts. Uh, join us again someday. Thank you for having us. I'm Lance Fever Myers. I'm LBDO. And, uh, and I'm Jason Newlander. Yeah! Thanks, everybody. Thank you. Uh -huh.